Welcome to the Gig Boss Podcast, where musicians go to learn how to navigate the new music economy. My name's Adam Meckler, and it's my mission to get you the tools to have a thriving career in music. Today, we've got Brian Courage, and we've got Andrew Green, and we're in the same room for the first time in the history of the podcast. I'm in the same room with the people I'm talking to. We're going to talk about uh, these guys and what they do in their careers, and we're going to talk a little bit about tour routing. We're going to talk about booking gigs and tour routing. Uh, we are a band, too. We've been on the road the last few days. Uh, we're a band called Supercell. Brian booked our tour, so we can talk a little bit about that process, and you've done that for other people, too, which we'll talk about. Uh, and uh, and that's basically it. So we should just start talking. Each of you, I'd like to hear just kind of like a snapshot of what you guys do and you don't have to talk about all the way back to like how you grew up and stuff, but maybe give me like a snapshot of your careers up to this point. Andrew, why don't you start? Well, I am a drummer and I suppose a percussionist as well, but I've kind of grown to embrace the uh, moniker of drummer more than, than percussionist. Yeah. Uh, even though I have a classical percussion degree from Lawrence University. Was it? Classical and jazz studies or just classical not. percussion? Wow. No, I okay. did not know that I could do jazz studies not on the vibraphone. Ah. It was not made clear. Interesting. Um, until it was a little too late. Are you salty about that? Uh, maybe a little bit, but not particularly. Because I feel like I would not be doing anything different if I had a wonderful piece of paper that gave me credentials to get into jam sessions with a jazz studies degree. Right. Right. You know, like it doesn't matter. The I paper as, literally means nothing. I, I did as much jazz as I possibly could at Lawrence. And I feel like I gleaned as much information as I could from studying all of that. You know, I don't know that a jazz studies thing would have aided me much more than what I've already done. Yeah. So what do you do now? Well, I just play freelance. Uh, I do a lot of jobbing gigs, and uh, I have a weekly gig downtown uh, at a restaurant with a regular trio and various freelance groups. Uh, my, I'd say my main creative project is this band called Twin Talk with Dustin Lorenzi and Katie Ernst. Yeah, and we had Katie on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it was, episode five or six. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said she had a great time. It was fun. I play in various rock projects, and I guess the most recent one of those would be with uh, this vocalist, Bethany Thomas, mm. who's a killer. And the rest of that band is just, it's all monsters. They're, they're all so good, and I feel very lucky to be amongst them. I also play for this crazy show called The Fly Honey Show, which is a burlesque variety show. And the most recent iteration was Three Nights at Talia Hall, the last of which was sold out. So a thousand people in that room. Wow. It was the most epic show I've ever played. Cool. And uh, yeah, it kind of changed my life. Nice. That's awesome. And you're based in Chicago. I am based that's, here. Which is where we are now. And uh, in addition to playing, I teach a little bit. Uh, it, it's not a ton, but it's enough to you know have a little bit extra every month. And then I repair and modify cymbals as well as make jewelry out of cymbals. Cool. In my uh, garage workshop. So when did repairing symbols turn into making jewelry out of symbols was that are you were always like an artist in that way or is that a recent development well i i think that i have one of those brains that needs to be doing something i don't know how to do i need to have a project where i can kind of fixate or focus on learning how to do something and i have to kind of blunder my way through that whether it's watching youtube videos or just 
making it up as I go or just, you know, throwing money at, at buying tools and then figuring out which ones work. And so the, the symbol repair thing started at Lawrence when my professor, Dane, asked me, hey, can we do anything about all these cracked symbols that we have? And I just mm. like looked up on a forum how to do it. And someone had made a little tutorial and I was like, yeah, I, I can do that. You just have to buy a Dremel. Okay, cool. I can figure that out. I think that was 15 or 16 years ago. Wow. So I've been doing that. And the novelty aspect for symbol repair is that every symbol is different. So there needs to be a little bit different approach and it's all individual to whatever problem that symbol has. And so I, I get to problem solve. I get to you know, fulfill that, that, uh, novelty there. And the symbol jewelry thing happened maybe three or four years ago. My sister asked for a Deathly Hallows symbol, like laser cut out of wood off of Etsy hmm. for Christmas as like a Christmas ornament. Interesting. And I looked it up and it was $12 and shipping to get it there by Christmas was 26. I was not willing to pay over double for shipping for a piece of laser cut wood. Yep. And so I just went, well, I could just make that. And so I made her a Christmas ornament with that, that symbol and, you know, cutting it out using the tools that I had was, was challenging because I hadn't done things like that. I hadn't made sharp corners before because the whole point of repair is these elegant Smooth curves. Out, yeah. So I kind of blundered my way through it and it worked out pretty nicely. Cool. And then, you know, friends have, uh, have earrings and they have different shapes and those shapes are made out of plate metal and they seemed like something that I could easily make out of a symbol and have it be much more significant, have a backstory, have significance with the material that it came from in addition to its current form. Yeah. And it's personal to you because you're a drummer. Mm -hmm. You play, you use symbols all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always interested by like fascinated by businesses that arise out of that sort of necessity to be like, I'm not going to pay for this thing. I'm just going to do it myself mm -hmm. and I could probably do it better or differently. Something that's more unique to me. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Brian Courage, bass man. Bass man. Tell me a bit about yourself, man. Give me your uh, two minute pitch. I was born at a very young age. <laughs> and then from there, born in New York, grew up out there, went to college with you lovely individuals. Indeed. Sort of. <laughs> Adam and I didn't overlap, but we met shortly after he graduated and then i followed him out to minneapolis lived there for a couple of years then moved back to new york back to brooklyn for four years and now i've been in chicago for four years along the way i have as much as i can just tried to make a living from playing bass only place where that was not possible was in new york because nobody can just play in new york until you get to a point where you're so famous that things are a little different for you anyway. Mm. Um, so I was working as a booking agent living in Brooklyn, mostly just for other individual musicians and groups rather than working for a venue or a label or an agency. Yeah. I was one of the few guys out there who was doing that freelance and in completely independent. And now I'm in Chicago and playing a lot more out here than I was in New York and very happy to be in a city where that's possible mm -hmm. and just trying to be open to playing as many different kinds of music as I can. I mean, my background is primarily as a jazz player, um, starting from college. I did play a lot of classical music through high school and college, starting to get called to do some more of that recently, which has been really cool to get back into that world. And I would love to do more of that kind of stuff. I just haven't been getting those calls for a long time. But yeah, mostly working in the jazz world and 
improvised music of all shapes and sizes. I have the main creative outlet of the kind of the pandemic and post-pandemic era has been a band called Abhorrent Expanse, which is a uh, fully improvised metal band mm-hmm. with myself and one other guitarist who lives in Chicago and then two of our friends from Minneapolis. So just navigating that and trying to make things work with a band in multiple cities yeah, it's um, tough. presents its own challenges. But we put out a record this spring that I'm super proud of and that got some really nice reviews and it just kind of occupies a niche that not a lot of people are getting involved with. There's Im- not improvised metal. Improvised metal. Yeah. It's not and- like there is a scene in New York of some bands who are still writing riffs and operating in a more traditional way, but then incorporate improvised elements into otherwise through composed metal bands and so there's improvised parts that get real weird but yeah. people are willing to put up with it because they know something composed is coming after that yeah that they can bang their head to but there's no payoff of the app no. expansion <laughs> no it's uh <laughs> no no head banging payoff <laughs> it's just, just well just relentless uh yeah or you could think of the whole thing as payoff let's recommend that plan <laughs> so met like the metal thing is not it didn't just come out of the blue for you. You you like love that music and you've played that music on electric, right? Yeah. Are you, you're playing electric in that band, I assume? Primarily. There's some upright stuff, but all the live stuff is all electric. Yeah, and I got into metal before I got into jazz. I got involved in that more seriously in high school and didn't really start playing jazz and taking that seriously, really starting to learn about it until college. Hmm. Uh, I had played in a big band in high school, but that was all just reading walking lines off a page. I didn't know how to walk a bass line on my own. And I was taking classical bass lessons from an incredible jazz bassist from Ike Sturm, who's Fred Sturm's son. Fred was our jazz director at Lawrence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, incredible. And Ike is an amazing jazz bassist and composer, but I wasn't really involved in that at that point. So I was mostly working on classical music with him. Of course, he was feeding me records. He was giving me Dave Holland stuff and Avishai Cohen and all these amazing jazz bass players. And I could appreciate it superficially, but I had no concept of what was going on or how the band was doing what they were doing. Yeah. So in retrospect, there are certainly things that I wish we had worked on at that time in the jazz world, but... But getting your ears around music is such a huge part of eventually understanding how to play it, right? It's like just getting your ears on it is like a huge step. Yeah. Especially in the high school when there's so much popular culture and things coming your way where you're like, I should be listening to things that make me cool. It's like, you know, it's like you you had things that were like jazz records. You were listening to that stuff. As the uh, kid in orchestra who was listening to metal records at home by himself, I wasn't really terribly concerned with being cool. Yeah. But... So for those of you that are metalheads that are listening, we will link Abhorrent Expanse's record in the show notes and we'll link the Twin Talk stuff in the show notes as well. Um, this band, Supercell, will have a record coming out December 2nd. So if you're interested in that, Supercell band is on Instagram. You can find that. I'll link that in the show notes as well. I think one of the ways that Brian and I hilariously connect, because there are countless ways, mm-hmm. um, is that I I kind of started off playing metal as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Cool, and that's a very chop. That's like a very choppy, like chopsy 
kind of you have to be able to really play. Brian was much more hardcore. I was more <laughs> into the thrash and then pop metal. And then I kind of transitioned out in high school and, and switched to more improvised bass music at a slightly lower decibel level. Yeah, cool. Um, but, you know, Metallica and Iron Maiden yep. have a, a special place in my heart. And they did in a car ride recently when mm-hmm. we were reminiscing about a lot of that stuff. And Brian put on a Man of War track that was pretty killing. <laughs> and the bartender at the club last night at Bar Central, he was yep. a metalhead. So mm-hmm. he saw your t-shirt and he was like, dude. Regardless of what kind of band <laughs> I'm playing with, I always am the one who gets along super well with the sound guy. Because the majority of sound guys are all metalheads. Interesting. And Tucker's so, like that. Yeah, of course. Tucker, not only a sound guy, Tucker's an incredible engineer yeah who, tone recording in yeah, Minneapolis. adam has worked with a bunch on different projects but tucker has mixed mastered recorded some of my favorite metal records of the past decade and he's as far as i'm concerned he's one of the most just one of the best metal engineers in the u.s working wow today. he's working no with shit. all kinds of incredible i didn't realize bands. he was that i mean like i knew he was deep in that and that everyone yeah. was coming to him for that but when I was talking to him, because I was doing jazz stuff, he was like, I want to do more jazz stuff, man. Send people to me, you know? Yeah. He's another example of somebody who also plays jazz bass right. and does metal stuff on electric. That's interesting. Yeah. And as soon as I pitched the Abhorrent Expanse project to him, it just, tell me when this is happening. I will cancel everything. <laughs> We're going to do this. We could not, we absolutely could not have done that with any other engineer. We threw so much weird shit at him. That's cool. So neither of you... I said this the other day, and, and you, I don't know. It's like you could, it could be taken a couple of different ways. Neither of you have held a real job, like a job job, since graduating from college. I, I think that's super inspiring. I love that about you guys. And I want to talk about the – I want to maybe dig a little deeper into the things that you do that were non-playing. So you, you've become – both of you become top call players in the city where you're at in, in Chicago. And I actually love, I'd love to talk a little more about being in New York too, but we can maybe come back to that. I want to talk about the things you did on the side that were music industry related or art related that made you extra income or continue to make you extra income. Brian, let's talk a little bit about your, your booking stuff when you were in New York and maybe this can cross into just being in New York and trying to survive, but you said you freelance booked for a lot of artists. Mm-hmm. So what did those things look like? Like when you booked a tour for someone first, like how would you get a gig like that? And then what kind of things would you ask from the artist in order to be able to do your job in a way that was effective? So the booking agent thing came about through a conversation with John Raymond. Yeah. Who was just on the podcast July, yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Who was, um, yeah, teaches in Indiana, but he's from Minnesota originally. And I was living in Minneapolis after college and John was coming back to town to play gigs. As a lot of people do in New York, they go back to where they're from or have lived previously to hustle up a bunch of gigs around there. Because this was certainly my experience. It was way easier for me to get gigs that paid well outside of New York Mm -hmm. when I was living there. So I would go up to Minnesota a couple times a year for two weeks at a time because it was just easier to generate work up there. Right. And I would try to play at least one gig in Chicago, either on the way up or on the way back every time. The vast majority of those being with Andrew. And I met a ton of the local players here doing that, even though 
I wasn't living here. I hadn't lived here. It's just we were had other guys join our groups or we were splitting bills with other bands. So by the time I moved here, I already knew a lot of the other musicians. Yeah. But the booking agent thing started with a conversation with John and he had been helping me out as I moved back to New York. He was the one who got me hooked up with my first apartment. Hmm. He was just trying to keep an eye out for me as I was getting started on the scene. So he knew I was looking for other kinds of work and didn't have a lot of gigs yet. He and his wife had just had, I believe, their second kid. Hmm. And he had this band, still has the band called Real Feels with Gilad Hexelman on guitar and Colin Stranahan on drums. And he wanted to be on the road more with that band, but he had a newborn and did not have time to be booking any of this stuff for himself. Right. So we were talking. Yeah. Adam knows exactly how that goes. <laughs> that game. Uh, we were talking and he said, man, I would love some help with booking some of these tours and I don't have time to do it myself. So would you be willing to step in and do some of that? So we had to figure out a way to make that worthwhile for him, but also consistent and lucrative for me. Because yeah. the majority of other booking agents all work on commission. They book a gig artist gets paid a certain amount the agent will take a 15 or 20 percent cut that works great if you have a stable of 10 or 12 different artists that you're working with because there's always multiple irons in the fire you don't have to worry about when that commission payment is going to land because you're trying to line up something for all these other people this was a new thing for me and john yeah. was my only artist so he said okay well i can't do a commission-based system because i need this to be reliable income mm-hmm. so he was willing to let me charge him hourly based on the amount of time that i put in in the process of book and i think that just required a lot of trust on his part that I wasn't going to be unnecessarily charging him for time that wasn't actually spent right doing that like he trusted that however much I time I said I put in was actually what the work was yeah but that way I knew that similar to a more traditional job you work a certain number of hours you get paid a certain amount yeah so I could rely on that is a interesting balance point i didn't want to work too much and overcharge him yeah but i also needed to work enough that i could actually get him some gigs and succeed mm-hmm. in totally. the thing that i was trying to do totally um so the only thing that worked was 80 hour work weeks yeah you know so <laughs> it was only fair that i'm charging him a couple grand a week to yeah pull right that all up. um and he's a jazz trumpet player in new york so i'm sure he wasn't paying that yeah he's ironically he was still very involved in booking the gigs and the majority of what I was doing for him was booking clinics and master classes. Oh yeah. And there's more money in that. Yeah. Which is how his band was able to break even and make sure his sidemen got paid well on the road is that every city they went to, they tried to play a clinic that day. Yeah. So this is a formula for booking tours that's maybe interesting to some listeners tend to call them like anchor gigs where you get one gig that pays a bunch of money and then it kind of helps so you can supplement the club shows and especially when you're dealing with like 
improvised music or you're dealing with non-traditional music where you don't have a huge audience that's that's that you've developed maybe maybe you're early on in your touring process but you have a lot of experience as an educator or you have a lot of experience as a player there's value in in the education system and like I run a jazz program at, at uh, Michigan Technological University and I'm always kind of reaching out to artists and going like, come on into my school, or at least for the last couple of years, it's been like zoom in and talk to my students and I can pay you a few hundred dollars. It's like schools have budgets to do that. So if you're somebody who's looking to book a tour and you're looking for anchor gigs and you're somebody who's maybe has some charisma, uh, is the, the ability to teach, the ability to really communicate uh, your about your music and what you do, then you can reach out to universities, you can reach out to high schools, and you can book gigs that pay a significant amount of money and help to anchor, which is sort of what, what you're talking about. Yep. And I, I think we all have experienced clinicians coming into various schools that we attended. I think Lawrence was a great example of this, where our professors would bring in people, not only, you know, top level pinnacle artists yep. who were coming in for the guest series, but more up and coming people, more people like closer to our age or our, like what we saw ourselves doing and, yeah. and listening to their experiences and getting advice from them. You know, like I, I could go down the list of all the people that I got to work with at Lawrence and yep. like the first two that come to mind are like Dave King and Nate Smith. Yeah. That was like, you know, freshman and sophomore Man, year. Nate Smith didn't come when I was a student. <laughs> no, but I did get to work <laughs> with Dave. That was killer. I, I have a very... I have a very distinct memory of working with Dave at, at Lawrence mm -hmm. and it was really impactful and just seeing Happy Apple there a lot. And and that and developing that relationship yep. came about because he came in for the clinic. Like that right. was the first time I met him. Right. And then, you know, we we ended up both booking Happy Apple or the trucking company at some point yeah. to come through. That come. was ironically my first <laughs> artist booking experience was bringing in our friend Reed Flicked was previously involved mm -hmm. with getting Dave to Lawrence and it became an annual tradition. And that was like a student fund, right? Wasn't yep. that like yeah. a student fund that where you could bring bands in or whatever, bring entertainment into the yep. school? Yeah, I was working with multiple different student organizations to because it used to be just one group and then they no longer were able to fund the whole thing anymore. So I had to reach out to different organizations. Also just, I'm going to say writing grants, but it's a lot <laughs> less involved. A very, very basic version of yeah. writing a grant to another like student fund yeah, okay. that it wasn't immediate. It's like, oh, you could, there's actually this money that is accessible, but you have to do this, this, and this to get mm -hmm. to that. Um, yeah, so I brought in Happy Apple. I brought in... Todd Clouser's group, yeah. which Adam was playing in. That was when I was playing, yeah. yeah. We played in the Memorial Union when it was like brand new or something. Yeah. yeah. I booked that gig. That was the... So that... This is crazy. I remember this weekend because it was before Easter. Do you remember that? Before yeah. Easter. Yep. And so we played the Saturday night before Easter and we drove back to Minneapolis after the gig. And so we got back to Minneapolis at like 3 a.m. or something, 4 a.m. And I was like trying to stay awake because Todd was driving and it was like, got to stay awake in the front seat. And then I got back to my apartment in, in St. Paul and set my alarm and fell asleep and then did not wake up to the <laughs> alarm. And so I woke up to a phone call from, from Kate DeVoe, who's in a really amazing trumpet player in Minneapolis, who uh, she and I played this. Easter gig every year, which is like Easter for brass players is like, it's time to make some money. It's like, you can really make some money. That's my one classical gig every year. For <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. 
Yeah, so it's like classic. <laughs> I'm playing piccolo trumpet. I'm like learning, all, and and we're just like slamming super hard in the Memorial Union the night before. So my chops are like all swollen, and I'm like super fatigued. And I get a phone call at 8 a.m. and it's Kate, and she's like, "Hey, are you on your way? Are you coming to the gig?" It's like the only time I ever slept through a gig alarm, and uh, and I got that. She's just, "I it's okay. I told them that you had a Catholic church gig because a lot of trumpet players will do like an early, <laughs> more like 5 a.m. Catholic church gig and then rush to another like a Lutheran service. This was a Methodist <laughs> church, so she's like, "I told them that you had a Catholic church gig beforehand. Totally covered for me. It was it was great. <laughs> yeah. So." That tangent, just to say, we've all had the clinician experience yeah. as as students, and so I think we, we all know how valuable it can be to work with students. What's your experience been like with Twin Talk? I was going to ask that about doing um, clinic work. The Twin Talk clinics have been some of the most rewarding moments that we've had together as a band, even outside of performing, and like we, we are a very well-rehearsed band. Yeah. Um, especially before the, uh, the pandemic, we probably averaged out to rehearsing once every week or two for, you know, seven years. Wow. Um, cause you know, leading up to a tour, we would have a lot of rehearsals right? and then, you know, we'd have a little bit of time off, but we kind of had like monthly or every two month gigs in Chicago for that, that whole period of time. And I, I figured it out at one point, just looking through the calendar, but I would imagine we're we're at over 150 or 175, maybe even 200 gigs with that wow. band. It's awesome. Um, and with as much as we've rehearsed and performed, the things that Dustin and Katie would say after students played, like, have changed my life. Oh, and that's beautiful, man. You learn and, from the members of your band. Yeah, and sometimes you you need that impetus of a student struggling through something or trying to figure out what to do. Mm. And then Dustin just comes in with this gem or Katie lays down a foundation for especially female students to look up to her. And, yep. and she presents herself in a way where she's very powerful on stage. Yep. And she talks about that a lot mm. where you kind of have to put up this facade to, to be a powerful performer. And that's expected in the industry. Like acting, kind of. Yeah, you mean? kind of. Even if you're like inside, you're like, uh, am I supposed yeah. to be here? Am I worth? It's and, like you gotta just put it on. I I think it's so valuable for for her to kind of like lift the veil a little bit, mm -hmm. um, and say like, yeah, no, in that moment, I had no idea what we were doing. You know, if we played before the students, uh, before the clinic, like right at the top of the clinic, yep. and he's like, yeah, we we didn't know what we were gonna do right there, and and you know, lifting that veil or lifting that curtain allows the students to see like, oh, we can appear this way and still be vulnerable or still not know what's going on. Yeah. I mean, representation it's, is so important. Exactly. In the music, because it's like when you go do a clinic at a, at a college, it's like they, people, students need to see themselves in. Mm -hmm. I was just mentioning this the other day to you guys, maybe, I don't remember, yeah, but yeah, I had in, a student in, in who, the car. who said like, he was like, man, I've never had a young black student of mine at, at, who had went to St. Paul Conservatory and then went to McNally Smith and studied trumpet with me. And he said, I've never, I said this on the podcast, actually talking to uh, Aaron Washington, but he goes, I've never had a, a teacher that looks like me, you know? And I was like, geez, it's like, it's incredible that he's lasted this long in the system when he can't see himself in the music. I mean, it's like, we have no trouble with that. It's like white dudes everywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's like, man, it's like the being able to see yourself and, and particularly women, it's like, 
you, you don't see a lot of women in jazz bands when you get into the college level. It's like, I do a lot of guest artist gigs at high schools where I go and they play my music and we do a big concert and it's like 75% of every band are female students or female identifying students. And it's like, why is there such a huge drop off when you get to the college level? Like maybe they don't see themselves in the bands that are playing professionally. And that's why mm-hmm. there's no desire to continue playing. They're like, well, there's no future for me in this. And Kate, Katie's such a badass player. I mean, it's like a singer as well. And, and we, and I think in the industry, there are these ideas about what singers are, mm-hmm. you know, amongst instrumentalists and to have somebody who's such a badass player also be singing and doing it at the same time. And we talked about this on Katie's episode of the podcast a lot <laughs> of like the independence of, doing what she does on bass and doing what she does singing. It's yeah. Incredible. And, and her ability to kind of split her brain and play bass, her bass playing is kind of like accompanying me. And then her singing is kind of, you know, it's like another horn, like another horn. Yeah. So she's interacting with both of us and improvising with both functions. And obviously, well, I guess not obviously, but I, I don't think she thinks of them as separate things. They're connected the interconnectivity of it, the interdependence rather than independence yeah, because they rely on each other to be able to, to make something happen. But it still appears as though she's splitting her brain. Right. To be able to improvise freely with both right. of us. I mean, she said it's, she goes, this is no big deal. I don't know. I right. just do it. And <laughs> right. I was like, cool. That's <laughs> great. That's great. That's great. Awesome. <laughs> Super. It's funny to hear you say, <laughs> like, I can tell that it, that it feels that way to you. Mm-hmm. Like listening to you, I can tell that it's, it's just, it's free flowing, you yeah. know, it's like, here it is. And here it is. And it's pretty amazing. I wanted to, to go back to your time in New York because we kind of went on a tangent with, with anchor gigs, mm-hmm. which is a really important part of booking a tour. So you started with John. Did it grow from there? Did you do, did you start working for other artists and yeah. booking for other artists? Yep. I worked with John for, I think between a year and a half to two years. And I just, started telling people that I was doing that and John would talk about it to other folks as well. And so it got on the radar. One of the next artists I worked with was my former teacher, Ike Sturm. Um, So his project, Endless Field, is a duo with a really amazing guitarist named Jesse Lewis. I started working with them, same thing, like booking them in different parts of the country than where they had usually played before and trying to get them some clinics. It was interesting with them too, because they weren't really pitching themselves as a jazz group because they're, it's, it's, it's still instrumental music, but it was coming from more of a holistic, almost new age kind of space where they're just trying to provide experiences for people without being so tied down to swing rhythms and the type of harmonic and melodic language that you usually would expect from a jazz group. Right. So So how does that change how you book them? uh, Your pitch is different. The way you're selling the band is different because, and also you're like, we're, they were deliberately pushing me to not book them at jazz clubs and ah, find other kinds of venues. And yeah. sometimes that worked really well. And sometimes that really didn't. <laughs> and I ended up with them at a coffee shop somewhere in New Hampshire that they said was just really not great. <laughs> so, so, but it was that kind of feedback. Yeah, it's like, okay, the list. <laughs> yeah, don't bring them back to this place. Yeah, but each... 
group that I, so I started with John, started working with Endless Field, eventually worked with Ryan Keverly, who's a trombonist who's played in Maria Schneider's orchestra. It's a really incredible yeah. player. And then from there, right as I, I'm trying to think if I missed anybody, I had a couple other potential clients that didn't work out. You were approached by a record label, weren't you? Yeah. I was talking with Fabian Amazon about being the in-house booking agent for Biophilia Records, which That's is right. the label that Endless Field was signed to and still are signed to. Fabian was a friend and I had seen him play a bunch of times and he was growing his label and in a similar position to where John had been, not with having a kid specifically at that point, but he just, the responsibilities were outgrowing the amount of time that he right. had and what he was capable of doing, especially given that he's one of the like most acclaimed pianists in the world yeah. and is a first call for artists all over the place. So he just didn't have the time to... He needed to scale. Yeah. yeah that's what we say in the tech world. Yeah. Tech startup world. He needed to scale his business. Mr. Fancy Big Gig yeah. Boss Tech Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but his issue was that he, yeah, needed the help, but didn't have the resources to pay me to do that. Yeah, so I wasn't working with them, but worked with John, Endlessfield, Ryan, and then right before I left New York, I very briefly started working with Aaron Goldberg with his oh, yeah. trio with Leon Parker and Matt Penman. Nice. And he just was between managers at that point. He was looking for a new management and was trying out some different folks and looking, just needed some help with US-based booking specifically. Already was working with some big agency for Europe and Japan, but yeah. wanted had a new trio record coming out, wanted some help booking some more stuff in the US. I only ended up working with him for a very short amount of time, two or three months or something. That was as I was... Leaving New York, um, I was getting really burned out with everything I was trying to do there. And so it was all just kind of crumbling apart in different places. And it yeah. was, I, I just couldn't maintain. So why, like, this is the question I have. Why, I, I think I know the answer, but like, why move to New York then? If you can't make a living playing and you have to do something else. Yep. And maybe it's something you don't want to do. I know a lot of people that like work at coffee shops, work at Starbucks so they can mm -hmm. get benefits and then they play so what's what's the benefit of moving to new york especially like as a jazz musician what's the benefit in the jazz education system even if they don't say it explicitly there is an understanding that if you want to be the best player you can and be surrounded by the best players that you can you have to be in new york mm -hmm. Whether or not that's actually true, up for debate, but that's the narrative that's presented to you is that's where everything's happening. You have to go there. It's the uh, center. Yeah. Do you think it's easier to get album reviews if you're a New York artist versus an artist in Minneapolis or Denver or some other place? Chicago even? I think in the YouTube and more interconnected global era, calling yourself a New York artist means something different and also is a lot easier to just generate this image that yep. you're affiliated with that place. Like this yep. is something 
I know Adam and I and Andrew and I have discussed before it's something that bothers me is musicians who lived in New York for a very short amount of time and then left who refer to themselves as New York based artists 10 years after they've moved to the other side of the country it's right. just that's it's like a a buzzword in your bio that makes people treat you differently even if you're actual connection to that city is so limited yep which is why i (laughs) i was barely even calling myself a new york based player when i was living there and like because i wasn't active in the scene i wasn't you were doing jam sessions with a lot of people yeah i was i was playing privately with a bunch of my heroes but that didn't translate to any of them calling me for gigs. I had some gigs with another friend of ours from college who's a trombonist named Chris Mischblocksdorf who mm. was at grad school at NYU and he started a 10-piece group and we would play about once a month around different venues in Brooklyn. Cool. It was mostly other NYU grad, student, grad students. Which means you're paying, is paying 20 bucks or something? Yeah, and 25 bucks on a gig and most of that's coming out of Chris's pocket. Right. Especially for a band of that size. 10-piece. Like yep. we couldn't even fit on the stage at a bunch of the places we were playing yeah so i was playing those kind of gigs and then eventually joined a rock band and went on the road with them that's right uh super hardcore for a year um we played 160 shows in a year we spent five weeks in europe we were touring all over the u.s but that then prohibited me from doing the booking agent work while I was on tour. I, you like wouldn't always have access to internet. Um, I wasn't bringing my computer with me on those tours. Yeah. The Europe stuff, you're in totally different time zones. You can't, so much of booking is about getting emails in front of people at a time when they'll actually read it. Yeah. You have to be so meticulous about the time of day when you're, and the, the part of the week when you're sending specific stuff out. So let's let's really quick break that down. What are the Sorry. most effective times to send an email? What when do people look at emails? What's um, what's the formula there? I mean, the most effective way to get people to read your emails is if you're booking for Aaron Goldberg. <laughs> Compared to the other artists, just the amount of time difference from when how quickly people responded when you're working for an artist who has high profile art like Aaron was Simon for Joshua Redman and Kurt Rosenwinkel right and also an established band leader in his own right a bunch of great trio records yeah so people just pay a lot more attention when it's someone who whose name they're familiar with and they know that person's gonna draw they're gonna bring in a bigger audience so it's like cool I want to book that guy I'm gonna give him precedence over this artist who doesn't already have a base in this part of the country. Even like someone like John was established in New York, but he was doing more stuff on the West Coast. Yeah. And at least at the time I was booking for him, he hadn't been out there that much yet. So he didn't have that kind of clout. Even if the guys in his band did, like Gilad, yeah. Hexaman, and Colin were more established. And now they all three of them have been out there a bunch of times and John is starting to draw better on his own because yep. he has because he put in the work on those gigs that we booked together and now he has a much better foothold out yeah, there. Yeah, so we call those eat shit tours. <laughs> eat shit tours. <laughs> the tours where you're building up an audience 
you're finding a, a new new spots to play. Yeah. So clinics, anchor gigs are how you afford to do those kind of tours. Yeah. Still pay your side men, make them want to build a band with you and right. come back and do those again. But booking wise, for me, what seemed to be the most effective was sending emails out Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the after lunch, but before the end of the business day window. Ah. So somewhere in the like one to four range in the time zone of the person who's receiving the email. Jeez. So you had a down, you like really were proactive about or meticulous about sending. Yeah. I mean, those it, windows. It's hard to apply a formula to everybody because mm-hmm. everybody's circumstances are different. But overall, that was what seemed to be the most effective. The harder part to figure out, especially in the clinic world, is that you're dealing with academic budgets, which yep. at each school are decided at a certain time of the year. And that ranges wildly across the calendar year, oh, depending yeah. on the different schools. Oh yeah. So one school is booking exactly a year in advance. One's booking nine months in advance. One's booking six months in advance. And you're trying to get spots in all three of those for the same Dude. tour that you're booking three months in advance. We're choosing <laughs> themes for concerts three years in advance at Michigan Tech. Yeah. Like what the hell? I can't think three years in advance sorry certain certain places have budgets for clinicians and you can use those budgets but if you're approaching the end of the year some places have discretionary funds that they can apply to new equipment or it's like stuff that they need to buy or provide for their students or yeah, stuff like that fix, and sometimes yeah. they don't use all of that money and so then at the end of the year and i, I think we've benefited from that with twin talk a couple times where it's like oh no we like we have an extra three or 500 like left, you know, sure. Yep. Sure. We can, we can work you guys in. Yeah. And as a know. three piece band, you get an extra 500 bucks on a, on a tour. I mean, that's great. That's half the rental rental car, half the rental car. <laughs> yeah. Rental car, man. We were just talking about that. I, yeah. Don't use your own cars on tour. Yeah. Yeah. Rentals. That's big. <laughs> and it's expensive though. Mm-hmm. So it's like, that's why you got to get those anchor gigs. I want to talk a, a little bit about your symbol repair business. Mm-hmm. Um, you said you started at Lawrence and you cut your teeth at Lawrence fixing symbols for the school, for the program, for Dane. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're just like, I'll just use this time to just, I'll just do it because, you know, I'm not, not, not expecting to get paid. So well, I, I actually was getting paid you because were. I was the percussion studio assistant. Oh, nice. Um, which had some other names that I won't say. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine what those names might be. So how did your business grow? Like, how did you get, was it just, was it a straight up word of mouth or was it like you, did you do any advertising? Did you tell people that you had a symbol repair business? Like, how does that work? I, I did the symbol repairing at Lawrence for the, for the studio and studio instruments. And then some other students had symbols that had been cracked as well. And so I started repairing those. So I, I would say at, at, while at Lawrence, I probably repaired between 30 and 50 symbols, okay. maybe total. And a lot of that was just experimentation. And for, for a lot of the studio symbols, it was like, it, it wasn't, hey, fix this. It was, hey, can this symbol be saved? Right. Because there's not really a precedent for repairing symbols in, in most places. Mm-hmm. There aren't that many people who do it. Uh, especially who do it regularly. Like some people will have the tools to do it and their crash will crack and then they'll do a terrible job. 
because they don't know how to do it. Right. Um, and they don't seek out. And symbols aren't cheap. They are not cheap. And so if a new ride symbol is four or $500 and you know, you have a, an inch long crack on the edge and there's a guy who can fix it for like, let's say under $50. Yeah. That is worth it, especially if it's an instrument that you care about or you're emotionally attached to, or if it's a significant instrument from history or you just love it. Just and, love the and sound it, of and it. That, that's something for drummers, especially we get very attached to our cymbals hmm. because that's, that's the clearest voice, especially for, for jazz drummers. The, the, it, it's the clearest individual voice. You yeah. can kind of get away with playing any drum set within reason, uh, especially if you have your snare, your cymbals and your kick pedal, hmm. um, you can kind of make any drum set work. Is the kick pedal about the motion more than the, the actual, uh, head of it or is it, um, both it, of those? Things? It's about the feel, the feel of it, the yeah. size of the pedal, the, the way the mechanism works. Cause some are, are chain drive, some are strap driven. Right. Um, every brand has a different feel and a different balance the beater is different. So sometimes if, beater, I, if yeah. I can't tour with uh, an actual whole bass drum pedal, I'll just bring a couple of beaters, you know, ah, one's heavier, you can bring a weight to move it around the, the shaft of the beater so that you can kind of change the action. But on so many house kits, the, the kick pedal is like, that's, that's the stick for your foot to, you know, to, to translate energy into a note. Yeah. And so if you go to play that note and it's not where you want it to be, or it doesn't feel how you want it to feel that that's a huge barrier. Yeah. Um, and you get used to playing lots and lots of different ones. And certainly some are better than others, but there's kind of a middle ground where, Oh yeah, you're, you're splitting a bill with another drummer. They have their kick pedal. It's probably going to be fine. But if it's a house kick pedal, it just gets trashed. Right. Always. And, right. and you know, they're mechanical objects. They require maintenance. They require, yeah. you know, various like lube and yeah. screws can get stripped and parts wear out. Bearings wear out. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, dirt gets in a bearing, it's toast. Yeah. You know, various things like that. So I, I would say in addition to the cymbal repair, just kind of drum maintenance has also been another major aspect of things. Yeah. Um, but in terms of how I grew that business, yeah. uh, it was completely without effort. Wow. I do. I'm not great at posting online. I have a, an Instagram page that I reluctantly started because it, it felt like I just had to. Sure. But I think with the, the novelty aspect of it, I, I don't want to be repairing every single metal drummers crash cymbals in town. And right. I think that that is an easy Avenue where I would have to turn people down yep. and, and that's a good place to be. But also I'm, I think like a lot of, uh, freelance musicians and artists were bad at saying no to things. Yes, we are. And so I, I <laughs> overcommit confirm. myself. And, and so I, I kind of, I think use that as an excuse to justify not like the, the, the lack of effort that I put into it. But I also really like the word of mouth thing. The people who I do these repairs for, they play the instruments out in the world and other people see those. And they go, Hey, what happened? And then the story gets told about this person in Chicago who can repair the thing. And then, yeah. you know, it, it's just. So quality of work is quality of worth. All the advertising is the most need. important thing. Yeah. And 
I'd, I'd say that the two as most, a player, most high profile <laughs> symbols I've worked on are, or I guess symbols that have traveled the most are, are one of Quinn Kirshner's rides, a Bosphorus 21 inch masters. That's beautiful. And then one of Dave King's rides. Cool. That was absolutely about to crack in half. Wow. And I kind of convinced, let, let's say convinced rather than begged him to let me try to fix it. Uh, <laughs> and you know, put bolts all through the bell to try to like clamp it back together. And, uh, somehow it's still alive. It, wow. It's a complete anomaly. It makes zero sense because <laughs> he beats the shit out of it at yeah. these gigs. Yeah. And it's in so many videos. It, I can hear it on records. Wow. Cool. It's, it's pretty outstanding to be able to like work on these instruments. And then I, I played for a singer songwriter project a few months ago and they sent me the songs to learn. And I'm, I'm like transcribing what the drummer was playing. I'm like, man, this really sounds familiar. Is this, is this Quinn on drums? And of course it was. You recognize the sound I, of the I cymbal. recognized that cymbal. Wow. Because I, you know, certain ones stand out and that one is definitely one that stands out. That's cool. That's um, really cool. So it, it's just been word of mouth and, you know, I try to, uh, when I split shows with other drummers, I, I try to say, Hey, you know, if you're ever, if you're coming through Chicago and you have a cracked cymbal, hit me up or, yeah, you know, like we both live in Chicago and they see some of the repairs that I have on cymbals that I have. Uh, and they're like, Hey, who, who did that? I'm like me, baby. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, there you go. I'm like, Oh man, could you, uh, I was like, yeah. And you know, I'll, I'll, I'll send them an estimate if they send me photos, Yep. you know, I can generally send them an estimate of how much it'll be. Cool. Um, but, uh, I, I kind of find it a little bit ironic that in the 15 or 16 years I've been repairing cymbals, I don't know that I've ever really cracked a cymbal on a gig yourself. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't remember ever playing a cymbal and cracking it while playing it. I've had cymbals that have cracked, but I didn't notice. Yep. I've been down in New Orleans, man. They mm. hit those things with screwdrivers. Oh, yeah. And they I, I have a screwdriver symbol, <laughs> and, it, and it's, it's like mushrooming up on the edge, but I... Yep. I they're like, they're, they look like flowers yeah. almost, because mm -hmm. it's like ruts where they hit them. And, uh, and I've, I've just... That symbol, I've given up as just like, that's the, the brass band symbol. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to see how much I can trash it. There you go. So I guess I don't count that one. Yep. In this, because I'm hitting it with a screwdriver. Yeah, you're literally hitting you know, a screwdriver. It, There's nothing um, you can do. But it, it's the symbol repair thing has allowed me to connect with a lot of drummers and musicians in ways that I would not have otherwise. Mm. And I think that that's super valuable to be able to develop relationships with a lot of people yep. through that. And through booking Happy Apple or, or the trucking company at Lawrence, I developed a, a relationship with Dave. But now, you know, just because of these instruments I've worked on, that's a whole other level where, right. you know, he'll hit me up usually the day of every time he gets into town, I'll just, you know, look at my phone like, Oh, Dave King, that's an exciting <laughs> phone call to get or text or whatever. That's cool. And he's like, Hey, I'm in town. What are you doing this afternoon? I'm like, uh, nothing. He's just he's looking like, to hang. Just looking to hang. That's great. There was one time he hit me up and he's like, Hey, do you want to go to the art Institute? Yeah. Like, yes. That's, that's all I want to do, man. I've got a great Dave King story working. A, I worked a festival with him once. I don't know if I want to tell the story, but it is fantastic. It's just, I mean, he, yeah, <laughs> he's, 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 
Yeah, he's an interesting dude. Anybody that's seen him play, like, you know, he's like a comedian mm-hmm. on the microphone. Yeah. Um, so the the symbol jewelry offshoot of the symbol repair yeah. um, has been interesting in a, in, a, in a few different ways. The first being the quality of my symbol repair work has gone way up. Because when you're working with small objects, yeah, you got to be really, you have to be very meticulous. Mm-hmm. So I figured out all these methods to make the the end result, like the the finishing uh, after the repair, you know, almost a mirror finish, and it's pristine and beautiful. It, it, I kind of pride myself on it being better than what was originally there. Cool. It also connects me with the world outside of musicians, because everybody likes music. Yep. Or if you don't, you're. And that's just a cool idea. You know, it, it's a cool idea. It's a way symbols? for non-musicians to connect play? with music in a different way. Totally. Do you sell them at shows? Um, I have. Man. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't, I, I'm trying not to say should anymore. I, I've been listening to Steve Gould's podcast. Steve Gould's an amazing drummer. And he said, he talks about the difference between saying should and could. I'm trying not to say should, but man, you could set up a little a box that has your jewelry in it at the merch table. I mean, and I, a, I, I really have done that. The first time I sold jewelry kind of publicly out in the world was in the lobby of the fly honey show hmm. in 2019. Cool. They, they just had vendors set up things. So there was a, a person who made like leather harnesses Yeah. who was providing them for people in the show if they wanted to wear them. And then, you know, people attending the, sh- the, the show could also buy them. Cool. And that was a really great way to promote her business. Right. And so, you know, she had been very established, but I knew that, that she was going to be there selling stuff. And so I just hit, hit up the production manager of the show and asked if I could, you know, set up a table. And she said, oh yeah, we have lots more vendors, you know, out there this year. Cool. We would love to have you. And I don't know if I paid a commission or anything to just set up out there. Just did it. And I just did it. And I, I sold out. That, oh, that's awesome. I think as musicians, it's like we're caught I me mean, at Porn and Expanse did cassettes. Yeah. Right? It's like, we're thinking about merch wise. Like how can we do things that are not CDs? I mean, it's like basically how can we do things mm-hmm. that are not CDs? We all have CDs. I have boxes and boxes of them, thousands of CDs in my shed at, at my house. And for a while we were selling them like a lot. And then it was like 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012. And I was like, no more CDs, 2013, 2014, just going down, 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 down. So the idea that you could sell cassettes as a, as like a nostalgic thing, people mm-hmm. that are like my age and up, it's like, Hey, we grew up listening to cassettes and something like jewelry, you know, Janice band has, my wife's band has these gift cards that are like these beautifully design gift cards by her dad that then have a download card inside mm-hmm. so they can download the album and then also have a gift card they can give away or like a, she'll do like packs of five, you know, and they're in nice plastic covers so that you can, you can have this nice gift card. To yeah. Give I, out to I, somebody. Brought a, I, I bought an art print at a show Yeah, because I, you know, I, I try to support all the artists that I, that I listen to in some way, even if I know that I'm going to go stream the album, I do try to, to actually buy most of the albums that I, yeah. that I really, I think fans like. want to support. If I'm just going to stream, I'm going to buy a shirt. Yeah. I got the same shirt, same mm-hmm. shirt. Andrew's wearing. I got the same Shout out my tree. That's my tree. My tree. Caroline Davis's band, really amazing, uh, amazing group. Mm-hmm. Both bought t-shirts at their show. We played with them in Madison on Sunday. Yeah. And I bought an art print from, 
this kind of, I guess, new pop. So I don't know. They had dancers on stage. It was kind of rad that they yeah. were touring with dancers. I don't remember the name of the band, but I have the print framed in my bedroom. And I just like think about that thing. You know, it was like a very simple thing, but yeah, I liked it. You know, something that Luke did at our show, it's like, he didn't talk to us about this, but he brought in somebody to sell a bunch of like weed products you know mm-hmm. it was like this this like hey this is legal in chicago now and mm-hmm. here you go i think that's such an interesting aspect too is like you could bring in vendors like you were talking about with a is that a burlesque show that you were talking about yeah yeah it's like having vendors that sell other things that mm-hmm. aren't music related yeah uh, we, and then we, maybe we had working out some kind of commission uh vendor at that show as well yeah 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 and that's 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 fascinating to me too that's a, definitely an interesting avenue musicians can take i want i want to talk for a second about social media because neither of you are active very much brian you're like completely mia on social media nothing he says nothing so hashtag brian courage hashtag brian courage (laughs) (laughs) we're adding hashtags of brian uh i i always love so we talk on the podcast we talk a lot to people who like build social followings and like, how do you build your numbers on TikTok or like, why do TikTok? And I think there's a lot of good arguments for like doing that, depending on who you are and what your interests are. But there are so many artists that make a career apart from that whole scene. And, and I mean, Brian, like you're somebody who's done it, who's a full, you're a full-time player. You've got a house in Chicago. I mean, it's like, obviously you're like doing it, you're doing it and you've never been on social media i mean it's like i i think that's so rad and obviously it was intentional like what do you think about do you, do you have thoughts about this whole thing like let's 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 berate our listeners a little bit like why shouldn't they do it <laughs> <laughs> facebook became really popular initially around 2007 mm-hmm. which was as i was graduating from high school and I had a bunch of friends in high school who, as we're all graduating, say, oh, you have to get on Facebook. It's the only way we're going to be able to stay in touch. And I thought to myself, if I went to school with this person for four years or longer and never got their phone number or email address, then chances are I probably don't want to talk to them anyway. <laughs> so that She's was like, my logic. And then much. I got to Lawrence and within the first month of being there, immediately lost my cell phone and lost contact with everybody much more abruptly than I had anticipated. (laughs) So I was cut off from all of those people very quickly. But yeah, once I got to Minneapolis and started working professionally, started gigging a lot, I just realized that the most important things I could do as someone without social media Mm -hmm. was to show up to as many of other local people's gigs as possible. Go out to hear other local musicians at every opportunity. And I quickly became known as the guy who was at everybody else's gigs. Totally. Like Max Santiago still introduces me to people as that guy. He's an amazing <laughs> drummer in Minnesota who runs a local venue called Jazz Central. So that was a big part for me is just go. I mean, I wanted to anyway. I was in a new city. I wanted to hear as much of the local music as possible. So I was just doing something I already wanted to do and reaping the professional benefits of doing that. Yep. So that was one part. And then the other part was just answer your phone mm-hmm. when people call you. Like 
And by that, I mean actually pick up the phone and receive phone calls, not just respond quickly to a text. Like right. If you get a call, this, I mean, robocalls were maybe a little bit less common at that point, but if you get a call with an area code that you recognize as being local to the scene you're in, but mm -hmm. a number that you don't have, pick it up. Yeah. Because worst case, you've wasted 30 seconds with a wrong number or a telemarketer or somebody. Yeah. Best case, you you've just got a gig on. you didn't have earlier that day. Right. So end of 2013, I started working a lot at the Artist Quarter in St. Paul. Billy Peterson, the incredible bass player who's yep. in his 50s, 60s at that point, who just played all over the world, amazingly accomplished player, but he was traveling a lot and sometimes for extended periods and Kenny Horse, the owner of the club, didn't necessarily know when Billy was going to be back. Like it was usually they were the house rhythm section for a lot of local artists as well as touring artists that were coming through. Right. And so Billy would go on these trips and Kenny didn't always have a backup plan. And I met Kenny the first night I was in Minneapolis. I came to hear Adam oh. play with the Graydon Peterson Quartet oh, cool. at the Artist Quarter. And I don't think Kenny really... Like I met him briefly, but he didn't know who I was for a while. But I sat in on some other gigs at the AQ later on. And then he started calling me to come down, especially for weeknight stuff. They usually had their weekend bands booked, but there were a lot of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday gigs with Peter Schimke and Chris Lomheim and Dave Carr. Yeah. And Man. all these guys who were just integral local parts of the scene who were playing there once or twice a month and they the expectation was that billy and kenny were your rhythm section on those gigs mm -hmm. and then billy would be gone for two months and kenny needed to fill these dates and a lot of times it's just the day of yeah it's like and i just like kenny calls i pick he told me so many times it's like man i just love the fact that you pick up the phone when i call you that it's not, it. I'm Just leaving you, phone. that yeah. I'm not leaving you a voicemail Hoping on a Tuesday for a Tuesday it. night gig. Yep. And then you call me back on Friday. It's like, oh, well, I don't have anything for you. This is gone already. But yep. for the last six months, the club was open. I was working there three or four nights a week. Yeah. And as a result of that, then I did some of the weekend stuff too. I did a weekend with Lou Tobacken. Cool. I did a weekend with David Hazeltine. Mm. Like had some other artists that were coming through that I got. I would never, like I never played with Lou in New York when mm -hmm. I was living there. Yeah. I was just one of 500 bass players that he could call to do something. But he comes to Minnesota. I'm the dude. Yeah. And I'm the Man, dude because cool. I picked up my phone. Yeah, yeah. So Kenny mm -hmm. always, I mean, half jokingly, but he always told anyone who would listen that they had a bed for me in the green room because of how much I was working at the club, <laughs> that I had just lived at the AQ. And I am, yeah, forever grateful to him and the whole staff of the it's AQ cool. yeah. for that opportunity because i don't know if i could have done that anywhere else yeah that's um, great I, you know I, I feel like a lot of people i don't know for me personally you were the only person i talked on the phone with for a long time yeah i was like nobody would call i wouldn't call anyone nobody would call and now like years have gone by 
and maybe there's fatigue from like the emptiness of social media where it's like, okay, my, my, I just had my birthday and there were like a billion people commented on my, you know, it's like one person texted me to say happy birthday. You know what I mean? Nobody called, you know, or, or, or like my family yeah. called, mm-hmm. but it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's like, it's so impersonal. It's not, it's not real. It doesn't feel like real interaction. And so lately in the last, especially since I moved to the UP, the last couple of years, I've been more proactive about like, I want to call my friends and talk to them. I'm going to call Evan Montgomery in LA and I'm going to call, you know, it's like, I'm going to call mm-hmm. Ben in Denver and I'm going to, it's like I'm, my buddies who have now moved everywhere, Corey in Seattle. It's like, I'm going to call my friends and talk to them. And, and sometimes they answer and sometimes they don't. Yep. It's like mm-hmm. people don't answer the phone. I'll call Andrew Foreman. Sometimes I know he's always out somewhere. I I have now come to really cherish that being able to talk on the phone with someone and I try to answer my phone more. I don't always do it, but I try to answer my phone more. I think that's something that kind of generationally happens. I'm a millennial and I think we all are. I am as well. (laughs) Yes. And our generation, because we grew up where dial up internet was just happening. (laughs) We were like little kids. I remember my first computer interaction was at school in kindergarten with a green screen like ms dos situation and you know perforated things on the side of the printer paper oh yeah and the full size floppy disk that was actually floppy not the plastic one yep and because we saw the rise of technology and experienced all of that now suddenly we're in middle school and aol instant messenger is the best thing in the world (laughs) And I feel like that's where our generation went. We're just sticking with that. (laughs) That's the way to do it. And so like text messaging wasn't like that for so long because it was on a, you know, a numpad. Yeah. You had it five, three times to get L. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the smart thing got it and like suddenly it started getting a little bit better. And then, you know, Blackberries are like full keyboard. My dad owned a cell phone store. He goes, no one in the United States is ever going to text. because that's a thing for that mm-hmm. Japan that happens, China, they're doing that, but no one's ever going to do that in the United States. And as soon as the unlimited like, text message, dad, you're wrong. Plans yeah. came as out. As soon as they weren't each 10 cents per message. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Then suddenly it was like, oh, we're never going back. Yeah. And I've, I've talked to so many, uh, so many people who are like, yeah, don't call me. Don't do it. Yeah. And outside yeah. of the music world, this is a, this is there's all kinds of internet memes like thing. that. Right. That are like, somebody's calling. What? I'm hiding. And, and I, I can confirm like Brian is one of the few people like infamously will, will just like start talking and then be on the phone for three or four hours mm. because it's kind of like, we're just hanging out and he doesn't live that far from me now. <laughs> like we do we still do that. We, we do Not that. for three hours right. necessarily. But, but you know, we used to do that when he was far away and now he's very close all yeah. things considered and we still kind of do that yeah sometimes it's easier to hang out without actually driving over to somebody's house we'll just mm-hmm. be on the phone for an hour instead it's like we both want to still be close to each other but it's like i'm kind of tired i don't want to leave the house right now it's mm-hmm. like, yeah. yeah and yeah. and the idea that you know the way to the way to approach a phone call now is you text someone, hey, can you chat for a second? Right. And I've definitely done that. And yeah. then, you know, you get consent for the phone call. And consent for the phone call. <laughs> that's wild. Consent from is like as millennials, for the it's FaceTime like FaceTime is one hundred percent necessary. Oh yeah. Oh but yeah. A random FaceTime? Come on, man. 
Come on. There, there are five people that I'll accept a random FaceTime from. <laughs> there are some people. I mean, it's like we were just talking about the other day. There's some people, like, if they FaceTime me, Andrew Stoll will FaceTime me uh, mm-hmm. just out of the blue. Like, he's, like, the, maybe the only one. But, man, we're, we're tight, man. Andrew, yeah. Andrew and I are Exactly. Tight. It's got to be even after Even if we don't talk friend. for a long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just different um, with him. So the, the desire for the minimum amount of acceptable contact. Yeah. What's that doing to us? What's that doing to us? As I mean, humans? Well, all those happy birthday messages on your Facebook wall. Yeah. Like, I mean, I just went through that in April and I, I looked, you know, and they still feel good. You're still like, oh, you're checking in with that person, but it's the bare minimum yep. amount of social interaction. A lot of times I'll actually say, I'll like, I'll say something. Mm-hmm. I'll be like, hey, you know, how's it going? What, what are right. the kids like? Are we going to see each other at the 20 year reunion? I'm like, I'm like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You going to the 20 year reunion next year? 20 year high school reunions coming up, by the way, guys. Holy smokes. I was going to say, I was just texting people about the 10 year. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say as no, millennials, like we're, we're some of the last, like one of the last generations that like memorized people's phone numbers and called oh, yeah. them, you know, like, but like I have, dis- I still have phone numbers memorized for my friends or like call, like I saw some internet meme. It was like when we were kids, we would call and we would have to talk to their parents yeah. before talking to like, intermediary. What? You know? Or their like, little sister would pick up the phone and they're like nine and you're yeah. like, Hey, can you put your older brother? Yeah. Put your old brother on the phone. And sometimes they wouldn't, they would just hang up <laughs> and you call back and they pick up again and they just hang up again. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So that, you know, it's, yeah, that's just, that's interesting so, to me, like how we've changed as people yeah. and, and like, what's that, what's that, what, that's gotta be a negative impact on us in some way you know, so. in terms well, of it, our interact, in terms of our connection with other people. It, it's the idea that when you like that, there's a, a peak amount of people that you can know really well. Mm-hmm. If, if we don't have a way to connect with each other, like our phones, like if you live let's say in a hypothetical, just, you know, completely removed from everything else. If there are a hundred people in your town, you're going to know everyone. Yeah. And I know that there have been studies that show like there's a specific number of people that you can know really well. And I think it's around a hundred, but with the, you know, kind of global interconnectivity, we try to to do more than that. And or you just know so many people not that well. Right. So just it's just like acquaintances. So like how many, how many best friends can you have? Yeah. How many people do you like really trust with everything? And I think in the music yeah. world, when you play in a lot of bands with people and you see people on the scene, it feels like you have so many friends mm-hmm. and I, I'm, I'm not saying you don't, but the desire to kind of become close with so many people has kind of gone out the window because we have this illusion yep. that we have so many friends. Well, now that I've moved away from Minneapolis, it's interesting because I played with a lot of people regularly in Minneapolis. And now when I come back, if I come visit or whatever, I'll be like, hey, I'm coming to town. Can we hang? It's like, no, sorry, we can't. You know, it's like, oh, OK. So we like we weren't friends. Like we, we toured a whole bunch together. It felt like we were friends. We know each other really well because of all the touring. But it's like. There isn't, there isn't that like, yes, I'll make time for you, mm-hmm. you know? And, and there are some friends and, and a lot of them for me are the people that aren't musicians that the, the people that are musicians, but, but aren't like full-time mm-hmm. pros. They have other jobs. Those are the ones, those are the people that I can call and go, do you want to go to the twins game? And they'll be like, yeah, let's do that. You know? And maybe that's partly because like being a musician is just fecking hard and like you, yeah it's hard to be like, yeah, I'm going to peace out for a few hours. It's like you're working on something or you're on your way to a gig or whatever, but there's also also a different kind of relationship 
that you can have with other people that I, I kind of like just thought of. Um, so I, I'll pose this question. Do you, did you guys go to summer camp when you were growing up? I went to Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp every summer for seven years. Yes. I did not know we were mortal enemies. Band camp, baby. That's why I don't like <laughs> I interlocking, interlocking people. I know, man. That's why I don't oh, like interlocking. <laughs> Woo! Actually, and the, the drummer who played with us uh, <laughs> in Europe, when I toured Europe with the band from Blue Lake, the drummer from that band was, uh, was an interlocking camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you have camp friends where you'd see them every year and you wouldn't talk at all during the school year and then you'd go back to camp and you're immediately best friends again? Yeah. 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 Situational Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's completely possible to have situational friends. And I think that that's kind of what you're describing yeah, with, sure. with touring totally. friends or with yeah. people you get to know in a city or it, it's coworkers. It's that, that type of friendship where you get along with someone really well, but you don't necessarily seek out things outside of that. Yeah. And when I was in that scene, we weren't hanging out really. Right. I, like maybe we would, after a gig, maybe we'd go get a beer or something, but like we weren't really like on off nights hanging out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I get it. I mean, I get it. I guess the way to do it without social media, I mean, I'm definitely on social media and Facebook and Instagram more now, I guess, than I was, but... You're not like trying to build your business there. No, I'm I'm not. And the number of people who tell me I should... is is endless yeah and i'm i'm happy to receive advice you know um and and a lot of the ideas are very good but i also only have so much time yeah and only have so much time that i want to devote to that thing right because it it's every every moment that i devote to something is a sacrifice from something else so you know it's a challenge because we're all spread too thin because we say yes to too many things yeah that's definitely Um, a thing and speaking of time i think we've been talking for a long time yeah I think so too. Woo! We're talking for a long time. We're doing good. Hour and twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Might have to split this up into two episodes. I think that's good. I think I think we've covered all the stuff. So thank you for watching on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, hit like, add a comment. You know, ask me the kind of stuff you want me to talk about. If this is something you want to learn about. Something you want to talk about uh, on the podcast. Say it in the comment section. If you're watching on, uh, if you're watching on, or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us a five star review. If you really dig it, you can write a little review that helps it show up in other people's feeds. And that's it. That's it. We have an app. Uh, Gig Boss is an app. Uh, it's an organizational tool for freelance musicians. You can create groups. You can create events. You can track all the details to events. Eventually, you're going to be able to do a lot more stuff. And we're building stuff. So download it. There's a link in the description. I'm not going to put any bumper talking on this episode. We're just going to leave it like it is. So thanks for listening. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Brian, for being on the show and talking about your expertise, thanks. giving us your expertise. I appreciate it very much. So-called expertise. So-called expertise. <laughs> we're all in it, man. We're, we're in it and expertise. we're learning as we go. And you guys have amazing experiences. And I'm sure that's going to be incredibly valuable. It's a lot of great nuggets. Well, thanks for having us. Uh, and hashtag Brian Courage. Nothing. Nothing. Hashtag Brian Courage. All right. <laughs> that's it. Boom. We did it.